Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well webinar and podcast series. Our guest today is Iggy Domogelski. He's the CEO of Wayjax. Wayjax is one of Canada's largest, longest standing, and most diversified industrial services providers. Prior to joining Wayjax, Iggy was the CEO of Tundra Process Solutions Limited a leading Western Canada supplier of industrial process equipment. Prior to Tundra, he started his career in finance at Investors, and he later became the president of Western Industrial, an air compressor manufacturer in Vancouver. So as you can tell, I've had a very diverse and highly successful range of executive level positions. He's an avid community fundraiser, and has served on the boards of the Learning Disabilities Association, the International Society of Automation, as well as the Kids Cancer Care Foundation. He holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the Asper School of Business. This is a really awesome fun fact. There is an award in his name that was created by his fellow students and has been given away annually since 2004. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And last but not least, again, what's amazing about this, you can never do someone justice in, in reading their bio. He has been named one of Canada's top 40 under 40, as well as one of Canada's 50 most inspirational entrepreneurs. So without further ado, Yugi, welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well webinar and podcast series. Craig, what an intro. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, thrilled to be here and Congrats on getting your show into the top 5%. That's an awesome achievement. Well, thank you so much. And it could not have happened without the ongoing support of extraordinary chief executives such as yourself and who are passionate about positive leadership and the listeners here are really intrigued by. So how can we be at our best? I do want to start with the award. I think that is so <laughs> cool because it also was created by your fellow students. So that says so much right there. I'd love to hear a little bit about the award and how that came about. That was a really neat and maybe like the most humbling experience ever. I was a really young person at that time. And during university, I was involved a lot in student government, was a president of our student council. And I, I think our group really did a lot of wonderful things for the school and the student body. And we were, we were all really passionate about it. And that was kind of my main activity during my years at university in Winnipeg. And, and I guess some of my fellow peers just thought that they wanted to do this. So I was actually kind of excluded from the process and they, they created this award. They actually held a referendum 
and students voted on it. And to my shock, they voted yes. And so the award itself, it's, it's a really great award. It's called the Biggie Domogowski Award for Student Leadership. And it's given to students who are making a positive difference in, in the lives of the student body. It actually gets funded by student fee. So on everyone's transcript, I think it's $1.50 or $2 comes off and it goes into this fund. There's about 2,000 students. So I guess it's about $4,000 every year. Some of it goes to the student, and but then the larger chunk actually goes to the student group that they're leading. And so it's used to continue on the success and continue to fund positive student type of things. I can tell you my younger sister who saw it, it said like the Iggy Award on her, on her, on her transcript. She went, she went through the same school. She did not like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's multiple sides of the, yeah. of the yeah. coin. That was a really, really cool experience. And I'm, yeah, it's been given out for about 20 years and yeah, I couldn't be happier with just the premise of the award and how it works. And congratulations again, and hosting the Do Good to Lead Well podcast, talk about a perfect exemplification of that ideal. And what I loved about it when I was reading it, it was a student nominated, student created. So that was because it speaks volumes around. So how that came to be. And then also, I think it's, it's such a thoughtful award as well in terms of, well, not only does it support the particular individual, then also the association, what they're leading, the impact they're trying to have, the positive contribution they're looking to make. And then it's been around for 20 years. That is really cool. So, um, no, I, I, I really wanted to, to start there. And Iggy has kindly offered to take questions from the live audience. So please jump in with any questions that you have to speak with one of Canada's top, most respected CEOs. So jump right in. Leadership has always been a hot topic. It's just constant. And now these days it's, it's just accelerating the complexity of leadership, the different things that we're navigating, the pace of change is extraordinary. What do you think are the critical leadership skills that people need to possess to be successful today and into the future, or those of our listeners who are aspiring to more senior positions of leadership? Yeah, you know what? I think they've changed over the years. There was a time when being really cutthroat and fierce, and you know, where, where those were kind of the most important things. And I think those were the days of you, you put the shareholder above everybody else, no matter what. So you just kind of did what you needed to do for shareholder returns. There was no secondary thought to anything else. And that's just what you did. Whereas these days there's, there's a lot more stakeholders, you know, there, there, there always have been more stakeholders, but I think their voices have gotten louder. And I think as a society, having more stakeholders than just the shareholders, shareholders are obviously very, very, very important, but having more stakeholders, listening to them and valuing them is important. So. I think one of the skills is just being able to balance all of all of those different voices and make appropriate decisions based on everything that you hear. There's a great book out there. It's called CEO Excellence, written by a bunch of McKinsey guys. It's it's, it's fairly new, and they studied you know all the most successful CEOs of the last couple decades. And they they call the job of a chief executive the the, the intersection of contradiction, which <laughs> I thought was just a perfect way to put it because you have just so many different people kind of giving you feedback on what they think you should be doing. And, and in many cases, it's totally opposite. And so putting all of that together and then making a decision that the best decision that you can is important. So I think it's just balancing all the voices and actually listening to the voices. So I think that the important skill there is listening 
and being able to listen and understand and ask the right questions to help you to get to the right answer. I think another pretty important piece is just empathy and caring. Our company in particular, and I think many companies, we're a company of people. So uh, Wayjack, you did a bit of an intro at the beginning of the call, but we're a publicly traded company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We're one of Canada's longest standing industrial companies. We're 165 years old, which actually makes us nine years older than Canada, which is pretty cool. I can't imagine what it was like doing business in the you know, mid 1800s, but we did it somehow. You know, we don't have a, you know, a, a ton of intellectual property like a, like a tech company might. We don't have huge factories and all these machines and all these capital assets. We're really a company of people. And you know, for us to be our best, I think our people have to be at their best. And yeah. business can be just this, this ultra power for good. We, we have people for 40 hours a week. And that, that is more time than anybody else has you. Your, your family doesn't have you for 40 hours a week. Friends don't have you for 40 hours a week. Any community, church, any kind of organization that you belong to only has you for a fraction of that time. So as a business, we have you for this, this period of time and we can inspire you and send you home fulfilled. And you can take that positive energy into your community, into your household, to your friends and family, or we can do the opposite. You know, we, we can send you home mad or, or depressed or anxious. And you'll take that out equally in a negative way, probably on your family and your friends and your community. So we just have this great power to do good. And if we can do that, then I think the world really can be a better place. And I think you really ultimately, at the end of the day, you do get a better shareholder result and you do get a better result for all your stakeholders because if you have people that are inspired and happy, you know, they're, they're going to be productive people. And that's, I don't think that's why you do good things for your people. You do good things for your people because it's the right thing to do. But I think it just does happen to give you a good result at the end of the day. So I, so I think the, the skill there is truly having care and empathy for your people and putting your money where your mouth is in terms of your programs and, your, and just how you, how you treat your folks. So that's something that we've been working on a lot at this company. Well, I love the focus on empathy. It's certainly something that I speak a lot about and have conversations about in terms of when it's present or when it's absent from the more <laughs> passionately in the in the latter. And and it is such an essential skill. I love it. And already we've got a bunch of comments and questions, so which is great. Steve was wondering, love your comment about that business can be the ultimate power for good. Just wondering. Were there any transformative moments that led to embracing that philosophy where sometimes you see so much as profit, profit, profit? And then secondly, any suggestions for how he can be more effective at bringing that into his current organization, more of a caring lens? Yeah, great, great question, Steve. Uh, I mean, for me, I was, I think anyone who's had any kind of success got pretty lucky along the way. And usually that luck involves having some really wonderful mentors and finding them at an earlier age. And so I had that a bunch of times, but like one specific mentor who was like, like my main mentor for almost all of my career, his name's Mike. And I was just fortunate to team up with him when I was like 22 or something. And he's just such a kind man. And, you know, when, whenever things would happen in our business, you know, like things would happen to people whether it was health or family related, he would always say health and family are the top priorities. Health and family are number one, you know, and ev everything else is secondary to that. 
And it's easy to say that. It's harder to do that every single time. And, you know, you, you only really prove that you can live that if you, if you do it in like the hardest time, right? Like, you know, if you're working on some really, really important thing that's really, really time constrained and you really need this specific to person to do it. And if they don't, it's all going to fall apart. But you tell them to go focus on their family or their health thing anyway and accept the, the business consequence to that. And we did that lots of times and he did that lots of times and taught me that that was the right thing to do. So, so I think that's the important piece. You gotta, when the moments come and they do, and you'll know because it'll be a really hard decision, you have to act with that principle in mind, even if it's painful. So I think that's the, the big lesson that was important for me and in, in building that care into the company and it's showing it at the moments when it really matters. And they, you know, they, they, they say that you, an employer, you know, an employer is just kind of there. You're, you're a part of people's lives, but you can really show up during like two main times, like the really bad times or the really good times. Like if, if you show up in a really, really great way, when people get married and have babies, whether it's giving them extra time or money or whatever, you know, like that makes a difference. And if you show up in a meaningful way, when the really bad things happen, so sickness and death, if you show up meaningfully in those times, those are. Those are the times that they remember. So, so as, a, as a specific tangible takeaway for anyone wanting to do it in a business, thinking about it in the really good and really bad times and can I do something extra in those times is, I think, a good way to start. Well, I think and it's such a powerful point that you're making around that in terms of how we show up on. And I love how you highlight both sides of the spectrum because we have you know high points, we have low points. There's times when things are awesome and times when things are challenging. And then how we show up during those moments and the actions we take or the things that we say have such a prolonged impact, can have such a prolonged impact for good or not for good. And so I just love that humanistic approach because we're all human beings figuring our way around this. Yeah. I had a comment. Dana said, I love how you comment or highlighted how luck plays a role because so often people seem to think that it's there. <laughs> They really glorify the, the past. So thank you for showcasing luck. Any reason <laughs> what led you to, <laughs> to, to that conclusion or realization? I think you're just, you're, you know, to some extent, you're a product of the people around you. And, you know, if you take it to an extreme circumstance and you think of people who might've been born into, you know, extreme poverty in a continent, you know, in a, in, in a country where things aren't that great, you know, it's in, in, in a poor, say African country or something like that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people there that are way smarter and way harder working than, than you and I, but they'll just, they'll, they'll never be able to achieve those kind of things just, just because they, they won't run into a mentor like that just because of their circumstances. A lot of that luck piece is just the circumstances that you happen to either be born into or that you kind of find along the way. And yeah, hard work does, you know, it, it plays a part in it. And I think you have to be pretty conscious about finding a mentor. Like they don't just super successful mentors don't just show up on somebody's doorstep, knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm here to mentor you. You know, I'm this successful person. I'm going to help make you successful. You know, that, that doesn't happen. You got, you got to put in the work and the time and the effort yourself. But I think even just the fact that we live in Canada. I think anyone that's, that's born in this country has won the world lottery. And if you have a 
even if you just if you have just nice parents and a family that generally stuck together, you you won the lottery again. I find the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's a thing too. But but certainly there's you know just good fortune of either being born into or meeting really great people along the way that you click with. So many great observations there, and in particular, you know, building on the observation of luck, that spirit of gratitude when you reflect and go, wow, just how fortunate was I to be in this situation, to have met this individual, to have had that conversation. And again, there's 30 different pathways where that didn't happen. Just things happen to randomly fall into place. And exactly to your point, yes, you take some intentional action or yes, you're there and you're engaged in it. Yet there's a whole bunch of different universes that didn't come to me where that never occurred. And so appreciating that, recognizing that is, is wonderful. And another piece that you shared, Iggy, that I think is so important as well. I love how you talk about the saying is easy and then the doing is hard. And I remember having Adam Bryant. So he wrote the corner office, also wrote the CEO test, in New York times, formerly of New York times. And he talked about as chief executives, your say and do ratio must be pristine. So I love how you're talking about that because you, we can all say a whole bunch of stuff and then the degree to which we actually take action and, and do something can be different. I love this question again. It's, I'm not surprised there are so many. Kevin was wondering, amazing story about how the, your wage axe is older than Canada. Curious about, so how does innovation work? Like, how do you create an in a, a spirit of innovation in a company that's older in the country where, where we live? How does that work? Love to hear about that journey. Yeah, that is a great question. And thank you for that. You know, although our company's that old, you know, there's no one in the company is 165 years old. So, so there is, you know, there's a lot of new people that come into our company. We hire lots of new people from, from various industries. And, and I think they bring new and creative ideas. I think it's incumbent on us to, as leaders in the company, to make sure that we're listening to those ideas. I think that's something that we can do better is really listening to our front lines on how to do things better. I, I think consultants that help, you know, with business processes and things like that are great. But I also think that our front lines have the answers. You know, yeah. like if, if, if we want to figure out how to do something better, we just have to listen to the people that actually do the work and not just say we're listening, but actually listen and use that to, to create the solution. So I, I think a lot of the innovation is just, it's in our people. We just have to give them the forum to, to express it. I mean, a couple examples of, of how, of how we do think about innovation. You know, one product comes to mind. It's a new product that we just released, uh, three months ago. It's called Tech IQ. And we're trying to use artificial intelligence to help predict what's going on with certain machinery. So it's, it's about the size of a coffee cup and it's a standalone unit that's got a magnet. So you don't even need to install it on anything. You can just magnet it to a motor or any kind of piece of equipment that spins really quick and it's got its own independent battery supply and it's got its own satellite phone connection. So you can do it in any facility. You don't have to use their Wi-Fi. You don't have to use their electricity because the battery lasts eight years. So you just stick this thing on and it starts transmitting data to wherever you want to look at the data, usually on your laptop or, or a phone. And based on a whole bunch of data that it has from a whole bunch of other devices, when something changes in the vibration of this machine, it kind of tries to figure out what happened. And then it tells you, hey, this thing has changed. 
And because of that, we estimate your machine is going to go down between, you know, 40 and 80 hours from now. So go do something about that. And I mean, so that's, that's like a, that's a proprietary Wajax branded that we own. And that's something that we released recently. So, so we think about innovation that way a little bit in terms of the processes. I think that's an area that we can get a lot better. We're, we're a company that, you know, I think we still do a lot of things manually and there's, there's so much room to listen to our front lines, to make things more efficient and, you know, turn a 10 step process into a four step process. And, and then we're fortunate in that we are a distributor of others products too. And, and those companies, uh, we deal with some pretty big ones like Hitachi and, and, you know, those companies have massive R and D budgets. They build technology into the products. And then our job is to make that technology useful for our customers. So how do we kind of link it into their systems or, or just, just make it work in a way that our customers get value out of it. I think it's, it's a pretty neat time to see how, uh, how AI and, and the internet of things is, is really reshaping our world. And we're kind of at the crossroads of all of that. Well, and have a question on that in the queue and before then, and Tina asked a question and I was similarly interested. She gives even a more specific example. She said in her organization, they've received some survey feedback that listening is not one of their strengths. It's tough to get, especially at the middle and lower levels, how you cascade that down. So I was just wondering, Iggy, do you have any advice around how they can encourage, incentivize more of a listening culture? It's hard. You know, I, I don't know that we're, that we're fully there yet, but we're certainly trying. I'll, uh, maybe I'll talk about our purpose and values. Cause I think that links nicely into this. I'm, I'm a big purpose and values guy. I think a company with a strong purpose will tend to outperform one that doesn't have one. And there's you know, lots of studies done on that. And e even in, even some, it was ENY did a big study. And this was like a fortune 500 companies. So, you know, like pretty big ones where you can get some good data and the ones that had, you know, a really good purpose that people believed in one thing, just have a statement, but then another thing to have a real purpose that really drives and guides the organization, that those companies outperformed ones that did it by a factor of 10 over, over a decade. Like that's crazy. And so, you know, I don't know if, if, if you put in a purpose, are you going to get 10 X performance? I don't know, maybe not, but. What if you get 1.3 X performance, yeah. right? Like that's, that's, that's pretty good. So, so interestingly, this company at Wajax and we've done, I, I think the company's done a lot of things, right? Been around for so long, you know, made it like we were, we made it through the Spanish flu and world war one and world war two and, uh, and every economic cycle that the world's thrown at us and we're still here. So I think we've done some things right, like before my time, but one of the things that we never had was a clearly articulated purpose statement and a clear set of values. Which when I got here, I thought that was, I thought it was odd, but I was also excited because I thought, okay, well, if we can get that in place and really drive it into the organization and really get our people living it and breathing it, then that would be great. But I also, I mean, I can't just write a set of values on a, on a piece of paper and say, here you go. This is, this, these are our values. So live by these. So we actually involved our, our front lines in, in doing this. We engaged over a third of our people. So we engaged 1100 of our people. And, and what we call these listening sessions, we trained a bunch of people to be the listeners and they're actually called listening sessions. And then each of those sessions was hosted by one of these listeners. We probably had 70 of those listeners or so, and they hosted these sessions of about 10 people. Some of them hosted multiple sessions. And in the end, we hosted over hundred sessions, got feedback from over 1100 people, and then brought all of that feedback together, put it into a bunch of themes and identified kind of the top 10 things that that we really wanted to think about as we were creating our values 
but it also served as, you know, it's as a, as a, as a to-do list of things, there's some things that we just got to fix. And some things are long fixes. Some things will take five years. Some things we can do in a couple of weeks. And some things we'll probably choose never to do. But at some point, we'll communicate back to the organization saying, hey, we heard you on this, but here's a reason why we're not doing it. So, so I think just going and getting the feedback is, is a really good first step. But then you kind of got to do something with it and report back. Because if you say you're going to be a listening organization and then you get all the feedback and then you don't communicate back and you don't do anything, that's almost even worse. Because then people just feel like, well, what? why did I bother? <laughs> so, you know, along the way, I'm sure I've asked for feedback and said thanks and didn't do anything and didn't, didn't communicate back. And, you know, I've probably made the situation worse. So trying not to do that. So, so we're being really intentional about you know, in some kind of regular cadence, communicating back to people. Like, I don't want to communicate everything back all at once and saying, here's all your feedback. We're doing this. We're not doing this here. And then done. And people kind of forget about it. I like to every month say, hey, here was another piece of feedback that you gave. Here's something that we've done about it. Here's another piece of feedback a month later that you gave and we've done something about it. And here's another piece of feedback that you gave. We thought about it. We're not going to do anything about it. Here's why. So that that's kind of how we're thinking about it and how we're how we're attacking it. And so far, we seem to be getting a pretty good response, but we're still, it's still early days in this journey. Well, there's an interesting follow-up. Kelly was wondering, were you concerned that there might be a wide diversity of ideas about values and that might create more conflict? What were your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was concerned about that a little bit, but not so much. We we went with, with a, a bit of a first draft. So the, the piece of the of the process that I first that I, that I didn't mention is, you know, we had a core group of 30 people, that group went out to 200 people. And based on the stories and the information that, that they collected over, a, over like a two day intensive seminar, we with, with some facilitators, we came up with a first draft. And, you know, mm-hmm. so that was representative of about 200 people in our company. Then we took that to 1100 people. And based on that, we crossed out a couple and modified a couple. So it, it was good to go to the, the 1100 people because a couple of the ones that we had listed, they said, you know what, that that doesn't really resonate with us and that's not really currently how we are. And I mean, there's there's different views on core values. Our view was that generally we already have to be living it to put aspirational core values on there. To me, those aren't core values, those are aspirational values. So we really wanted to have things on there where where a lot of our people were saying, yeah, you know, generally we can, we sure we can do better, but generally we live that. And, and we try to live that on the daily. So, so that's how we came up with that list. That was an important first piece is, is to start not with a blank piece of paper, but start with something that people can give you feedback on. Cause that would have been a real big challenge going to 1100 people and saying, so what do you think our core values are? Like you would get everything. Well, and I love that uh, the procedural side of it and sure, okay, we'll have a smaller group of 30, kind of that core part, get a draft, get it out. Okay, let's go back out to a wider audience and then make those fine tunes. And, and along the way, you're touching so many people. And and the really interesting point, because I think this is such a vital aspect that, that you're you're talking about, Iggy, which is around that. I'll talk about the difference between aspirational and actual. <laughs> and, and, and in my conversations, and I'm sure, you know, and I hear about it and feedback from podcast listeners as well is that. You know, when a company says, here are our values and they all sound fantastic, what do we actually live? Like if you go into a meeting, I've had countless conversations say, 
see those six values you show up in one of our team meetings. You can almost check off each one as we're violating them in practice. And I love and I love that point that you're making because if they're not lived, then it creates a massive disconnect, a massive chasm, a breach of trust. And so how do people really engage? And I love your point that there's so much power and potential in crafting these these values. And yet if we don't go through the process and implement and really follow them, we're doing a, and you rightly point out, Biggie, it's a disservice. It does more damage. I've got another question from Dylan, who really appreciated your observation about the purpose statement and just said, wow, about the, <laughs> the data behind it. Any advice about how they can craft a purpose statement in their organization? You know, I've, I've done it a couple times at a couple different companies and it's, it's inside your team. It's yeah. in there. Your team knows, but often I, well, I found both times that I've done it. I knew it was, you know, in our hearts and in our minds, but we had a hard time getting it onto a piece of paper. So I would hire a facilitator that is good at extracting that out of your, out of your team. The values, I think, have to come from the ground up to find out what you're actually living. But the purpose statement, that one's very forward looking. And this is, you know, this is what we aim to be. And this is where we're going. And this is why we exist. And so I think that one should be crafted by a management team. And I would, yeah, I would hire an outside facilitator, have them facilitate one of these sessions. You can do it in a day or two and, and you'll probably get to a pretty decent spot. But that's, we found that really useful. And, and if you are the, if you're the leader, if you're the president or whatever you are, I would recommend not being the facilitator yourself because then you can't really participate as, you know, as an active participant when you can't give it your all. So yeah, hire someone. It's not, it's not that expensive to do. You, you can do it as a small company and it's and very, very worth it. Well, I love that point around the bringing, you know, if you're, if you're leading the conversation versus you're a participant in the conversation and the difference that that makes. And I knew, you know, leading up to our conversation today, I said, I, I love your focus on values and purpose, and I sense this would be a topic. And yes, we've got to follow up. Simon was wondering, how often do you revisit your purpose statement? Is there a certain period or just any, any guidance on that once it's been created? In, my, in the previous business that I was running, it was called Tundra. It was a company that Wayjax acquired. We, kind of, we, we had looked at it again after four or five years and, and decided to keep it the same. Yeah. And, and this one that we're working on at Wayjax, it's, it's brand new. So we're, I mean, we're, we're in the process of launching it right now. And so like the, these listening sessions that I talked about, those were three or four months ago. So this is, it's all very fresh right now. So I, I don't think we'll be reviewing it for some time. This is, we'll be sticking with this for quite a period of time. Well, and, and thank you. Got lots of thank yous. This is awesome conversation. And I really appreciate the point where it's just revisiting and checking, not necessarily with the intention to change it or keep it in. You just, you open up the door and ask, so how does this fit in terms of where we are and, and what we're about? I have another question from Melissa who said, love this conversation on purpose and values. Can you give us an example? Are you able to give an example of one of your values and, and, and how you live that within Wajax? Yeah, sure. So we have one purpose statement and then five values that we've identified. You know, so just uh, w one example is we develop potential and expertise. That's one of our, our values, you know, and that's around making sure that our, 
know, that our people, they, they take great pride in being experts. We, we've got 120 branches across the country. I've been to almost three quarters of them. And when I talk to our frontline folks, you know, that you can, you can just tell that they're proud to say, I've been here 25 years. I know everything there is to know about this thing. And my customers trust me and, you know, they, they do what I, you know, when I give them a recommendation, they do it. And you can just tell them there's this pride of expertise. And, and, and then a lot of our people are younger too. And so, you know, they, they've got all this potential to be these experts. So I think our competitive advantage is our people. And if you think that's your competitive advantage, you got to invest in it. So we develop potential and expertise. I think the way that we are putting our money where our mouth is, is we just hired a, a chief people officer to really head up that function, to really invest more in the education of our people, especially our people leaders and especially the people leaders of our front lines. So we're, yeah, we're, we're really putting our money where our mouth is and making sure that our leaders have the skills that they need to bring out the best in their front lines and then make sure that our front lines have the technical training that they need to be those trusted experts. But that's an example of one of our values. Well, and just got a comment. Thank you. That's awesome. Love the, the concrete example. And back to the say versus do ratio. I want to thank Angela, who's been patient. We were talking a lot about the purpose and values, which I knew we would. And we may go back there. Angela had a question around AI. You touched on AI and, and machine learning. Love to get your take on that in terms of how it's going to impact organizations. And in particular, your comment earlier about the importance of empathy. How do you see this unfolding in the, in the future of work? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that we know about AI is that we don't know anything. <laughs> and, you know, it's such a hot topic right now. And there, there's been various other periods of time, like in the 80s and 90s, like it was, there's been periods of time where AI was almost as, as hot as it, as it is now, and it was going to transform everything. And it has transformed some things, but it kind of feels like this time might be a little different just with the advent of ChatGPT and Google's Bard. When I think about our business, we're using it just a little bit. So when I think of like the AI, like the, the ChatGPT style AI, you know, we use that for first drafts of things. When we need to write some copy for something, we'll, we'll kind of get it to spit out a first draft. I'll use it to, to proof and fix emails and make them better. If I, anytime I'm writing something, I'll get it to, to do something for me. If I'm trying to do a bit of research on something that's not, you know, immediate, cause it's still, you know, I haven't seen it be able to do, you know, things in the last year and a half from the internet, but I think it's getting there. That's kind of how we've been using it. When I think about how it will be used in the future, I think there's some pretty good applications in our business, you know, just a, a concrete one. We would order something from one of our suppliers. Let's say we order it for a thousand dollars and we tell them to ship it to us using our FedEx account, which means that the bill should arrive for a thousand dollars with no shipping fees on it. The bill arrives for a thousand and fifty dollars. And because it was shipped using their carrier, well, was it? Or sometimes it was shipped on our carrier but we got charged for it anyway by accident. This is, this is a totally normal thing to happen in distribution world. So is it possible to have a bot that goes and just figures that out? That it, that it, that it can, it can, it can take a, you know, if you scan the bill of lading, it's able to look at the serial numbers and it's able to track those down, match them into your FedEx account. Did it actually go to our account or not? And if it didn't, then we legitimately do owe the money. But is that an appropriate amount of money? 
is $50 to ship from Nebraska to Edmonton the right amount? Or is it too much? Or is it too little? And then potentially, can that bot make a decision? Can it make a decision that says, I've done this analysis, it's within the correct parameters, I'm just gonna auto approve this invoice? Because right now, an invoice like that is a discrepancy and it'll go up the chain and now some manager or even director you know, needs to have a conversation with someone from a supply chain about it. And it's, and it's a huge time waster on like, who wants to get on a call to talk about a $50 shipping charge? Nobody, right? So if there was a computer that could do that, and there is, I think, you know, we just haven't quite figured it out. Like that's one small example of, and, and, and that it can make a decision is the, is the key point there that can make a decision and move this and just approve the bill and put it into accounts payable and now they can pay it. So I think we're still a little ways away from that, but boy, if you could figure out that thing, I can't, I don't even know how much time that would save, but it would be such a significant amount of time. That's one tiny little example in our business. And there's lots like that. Well, I love that. And number one, I love this. The thing we know about AI is we don't know it. That's <laughs> a, a meme. And I entirely agree. I think that is. And to have that mindset, because I remember Adam Grant in a different domain was like, people are strong on opinion and weak on fact. (laughs) Everyone's got these opinions and and you're absolutely right that we're figuring things out and the pace of development is just so far ahead of what we can even fathom in conversations that I'm having. So I really appreciate your philosophy and approach on this, Iggy, And, and what I love too about that concrete example, imagine, as you say, like, That's one particular interaction, transaction, if you will. And that happens all over the place. So if you can get that streamlined and that capacity there, what a wonderful benefit it is for businesses and organizations. And then also how many humans will be, (laughs) let's get on a call and discuss a $50. Like, and then that's going to be, oh, you know, do we really need to? So being able to augment the efficiency and productivity in that way. That's, you know, it's fascinating to think about in terms of those places. So I've got another question from Sarah, who's wondering around. So how do you, how do you have those performance-based conversations? Like they're in a remote environment and so trying to figure out how to manage metrics and, and seeing people. So how do you, any suggestions about how to manage performance in a remote world? And in a post-pandemic world. Yeah, that's one that pretty much every company is struggling with a little bit. I could just offer some insights on on what we've been doing and just, uh, just, just general thoughts around the topic. In our company, three quarters of our people never left the front lines. The pandemic came, they showed up the next day, they're just there with a mask. And, and that's pretty consistent across the country, kind of, kind of th- two-thirds to three-quarters of Canada and, and I think the United States never left the front lines. I mean, these are the mechanics, these are the operators of water treatment plants, like these are the people that keep our economy going and they never left the front lines. So that's most of our company. So when we talk about remote work, we're talking about office administrators. That's kind of the people that we're talking about. There's a good chunk of folks that are salespeople. They've always kind of been remote. So, and and salespeople, almost more than any other are pretty easy to measure. You, you either got the sales or you don't. And and we've been used to measuring those folks forever. So I think any lessons that you have in managing a sales force, you just got to take those lessons and 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 now think about how to how to use those lessons towards 
these other folks. As a company, we have not mandated coming back to the office. I, I jump around a lot. I live in Calgary and today I'm in Mississauga where our head office is. When I'm in Calgary, I usually work from home. So I think me asking everybody to come back would be a little hypocritical. And I love being in the office and I love spending time with people. And, and I make sure that my office days are just jam-packed full of meetings and spending time with people. But uh, working from home, it, it works for me and a lot of other people too. Like those are the days that I need to just crush work and I don't need to, and my door is going to be closed anyway. Or those are the days I'm doing Teams calls with people who are not in Calgary, not in Toronto, but are in cities that I probably won't get to very often. So I, I like the hybrid work and I think you can take lessons from sales and, and, and apply those. And I think people can do no work in the office, you know, and, and I, th I think that's something that you kind of forget. Well, if I can't see you, you're not doing work. I, that's not true. Like, I think everybody on this, on this call here and everybody everywhere knows people who come to the office and do nothing. And so you can, you can spend a day walking around the office, pushing around some papers and get nothing done. I think I used to subscribe to the belief that if I don't see you, you're not working kind of thing, but I don't anymore. I, I think, you know, if people are working, especially if they have a job that has any kind of output, you just measure that output. And if they're really falling behind that compared to their peers, then there's probably a, a problem. Well, thank you. I got lots of comments there and in particular, love the linkage between managing sales and remote work. Great insight. So thank you. Multiple people commented on that. And I really also agree in terms of there was this illusion of, I don't know what the right word is, control, if you will, that if I can see yeah. something, they must be working. But if my eyes, it's like the eyes of Sauron or something, they're, they're <laughs> it's, you know, I've been the kid, nothing's happening. And and you're absolutely right. In, in my opinion, the, that is a false equivalency that people can show up and, and be doing lots of different things. And, and in fact, the clients pre pandemic, I was coaching and working with, and then they would have work from home days where they hid down focus time because of those different pieces. So, and I love your point around, okay, so now being mindful about what situation, what dynamic, who was there. And I also had a comment from Allison saying, thank you so much for acknowledging that many workers did not leave, you know, didn't, didn't get to work from home. They were on the front line. So the time has flown by. We only got about 10 minutes left. And I did want to talk about, cause you've had a fascinating journey just even during the pandemic and with wage and, you know, acquisition and moving from a mid-size to an enterprise level company, like What's that been like? What have been some of the lessons you've learned and some of the things that you've experienced in that, in that transition? You know, it's the, the last few years have been the years where I've learned the most in my career and it's been fascinating and wonderful. So if I, if I rewind to the beginning of, of the pandemic, a couple months in, it's May of 2020 and the world's in full panic still and we're trying to figure out what to do everyone's working not everyone all office people are working from home and figuring out how the heck do you run a company by never being there and i get a call from my predecessor at wajax here and he says hey you know what we've been we've been kind of watching you from afar for a number of years i know it's a weird time but maybe something good can come of a weird time and you know would you be ever ever interested in selling your company you know i talked to our our chairman and majority shareholder and said, Hey, you know, this, this call came in, you know, maybe, maybe there's something there. And so my partner 
that was this, this wonderful mentor of mine, Mike, you know, he said, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it is a time. And he's, uh, he's about 20 years older than me. So he was kind of thinking that maybe taking some chips off the table and he had some passion projects that he wanted to pursue. And so we kind of started going through the motions, came to a deal pretty quick. And then in January of 2021, we sold the company uh, to Wayjax. That, that was in itself, selling a company is a really cool process, uh, a super stressful process because as the person, I was a person that was leading the sale, which is an incredible amount of work. It's more than a full-time job. Like that's probably a 50, 60, maybe even 70 hour a week job. And, and then you still have this company to run too in a, in, in a pandemic. So there was really, really a lot of, a lot of late nights. And when the process was done, I was quite happy that it was done. But in that, in that time, when I was, you know, really working on, on selling the company, I, I had to give away a lot of my day-to-day duties. I just couldn't do it. So a lot of my teammates were great and they kind of picked up the slack. Then the company sold. And when a company sells, like it, it sells and it's over. 99% of the work stops. There's a couple little things that keep trickling through. And so I had all this time. I, I, had, I, I had time on my hands, which was really quite nice. And everything was closed. So it's not like I could go take a vacation anywhere. <laughs> there was nothing to do. So I started just to learn as much as I could about this company that just bought us. And I was talking to everyone, reading lots and learning lots. And I, and I just found it really fascinating and intriguing. A couple months after the sale happened, uh, that you know, Wayjax called me up and said, hey, I'm retiring at the end of the year, which at the time was, you know, 10 months away. And he said, you know, would you, would you be interested in being considered for the role? And I thought that would be a, a huge honor. And I said, and, and I was really excited about the professional development opportunity around that because part of executive search, I learned, I learned all about it. And that was, that was really interesting. So in there, when a company is looking for like a publicly traded company, it's got a board of directors, when they're looking for a new chief executive, they'll usually hire an external company to come and do, you know, a really, really deep dive, like the, like the deepest 360 you've ever had in your life. And, and those are expensive. I probably wouldn't have paid that much money to do it on myself. So I was like, buddy, what I'm. I, I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for personal development. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to really try to learn about myself here. And so we went through this process. Now that I remember my, my first interview was with, they put three people in our file. All they do is play CEOs and CFOs. That is their full-time job. Some of them have been doing it for 30 years. One of them was a psychologist. So you, you can't run and hide from that, right? Like you gotta, you gotta just, you gotta put everything on the table. And the first interview was with three of them and one of me for four hours. And that was just the first one. And then they had lots of those. And I did all these psychometrics tests. And then we'd get back on the line to review the test where they said they were presenting me with the results, which was a lie because all they actually did is they gave me the, the results, but no results on the page. It was just like the continuum of whatever, you know, introverted or extroverted or judgmental versus whatever. And, uh, and they said, okay, I'm this first one. Where do you think you scored? I don't know, a seven. They said, well, actually you scored a six. Why do you think you scored a six and not a seven? Right. <laughs> so it was just like this, this psychological barrage. <laughs> And you needed nine references, nine, you know, how hard it is to find nine people to say something good about you, really hard. <laughs> so, I, so I went through that whole process and then they had this report on me, which kind of determined whether I was, you know, kind of ready for the role now or in a couple of years or never. And they determined that it was probably now. And, and little did I know that the interview process hadn't even started. That was just the, that was kind of the warm up just to see if I was a viable candidate. And then the interview process with the board started and that was had to do like presentation after presentation. And, and then eventually was fortunate enough to get into the role. And, and now that I'm here, you know, that the learning has been, has been really, really fun. It's a, it's a, it's a much bigger company than Tundra. So Tundra was like 150 people. This company is 3000 people. 
And so that's, it's quite a different, uh, different and interesting way of leading because in Tundra, 150 people, I know pretty much everyone. I hired a lot of them. And if there's a problem, you know, you know, the couple meet by name, you know, that that's Jeff and Lucy or whoever, and I can go talk to them and I can fix this thing. Whereas it, in this company, there's many people that I'll never meet. And so how do you, so, so leading from afar geographically and just both through the complexity of a company that's been new. We have a lot more product lines and a lot more business divisions, things that I've never, never knew about before, kind of learning what it is that we actually do and, and the product and services that we offer. That's been a whole new thing. We're a publicly traded company. That, that is brand new. Before we were a private company, management owned, you know, like we kind of all just, it was me and another guy that would really make the big decisions and we'd do it over a quick phone call. And now there's a board of directors of 10. So they're all new personalities. We have a whole pile of investors. So, you know, doing investor marketing is new. We have analysts that cover the stock and you have to figure out what you can and can't say to them. So it's just been a ton of learning, really exciting. But that, I know it's kind of took a few minutes to do that, but that's kind of been the journey from going to, you know, a, a mid-sized company more to an ent- enterprise-sized company. And that's, my understanding is that would be a pretty standard journey if, if that's kind of how we, if that was your path. Um, mm-hmm. So if anyone on the call is about to go down that path, that's probably what you can expect. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sneak peek into the masterclass of, yes, yeah. <laughs> B-suite placement and CEO <laughs> placement in particular. I love the passion that you have around it, your energy for the process, despite how exhaustive it was, and really that emphasis on on learning and being open and, and exploring. I also think that's such a, an important piece for all of us to consider, especially in the world we're in now, and you touched on AI earlier, Iggy, just kind of being open to experiences, open to testing the limits of our potential, open to differing perspectives. I love that this is the closing story because it just ties together so beautifully all the different things that we've touched on with that core core theme. So I just want to say thank you so, so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been an absolute honor. I've got so many great comments, people saying fabulous takeaways, love the energy, very inspirational. So this has just been great. Any final words before we, before we sign off this afternoon? I'd just like to, to thank you, Craig, for one, for, for doing this podcast and for writing the books that you have. I think it's doing the business world and the world in general a service that's, you know, we talked about business being a power for good. And I think the work that you do really helps businesses be that power for good. So thank you for doing that. And, uh, and thanks to all the folks that asked questions today. Wonderful questions, really enjoyed them and, and, and really enjoyed the last hour. So thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, yes, it's uh, well. It's what motivated me to call the podcast Do Good to Lead Well, because oftentimes we can wonder, okay, how do those two things come together? And that's why I love profiling and in particular, such an inspiring story such as your own. And then as you say, it's, it's not just aspirational. We do these things and look at the results that we've achieved through them. And so really just as more fuel to the motivational fire, if you will, to move forward and really make a positive difference. So thank you everyone for tuning in today. Really excited to have you on board. Fantastic questions as always. We're looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of Do Good to Lead Well. Until then, take care. Bye for now. Thanks again, Iggy. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. 
I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.